This episode of the Security Ledger Podcast is brought to you by Versec Systems. Versec was founded on the belief that a new model is needed to counter today's advanced cyber threats. Versec's technology pinpoints threats at the source within business-critical applications. The Versec platform maps correct application behavior and instantly detects and blocks deviations caused by attacks. This deterministic approach stops threats in real time, delivering unprecedented accuracy without false positives. Versec protects any application, patched or unpatched, across the full application stack from web threats to binary memory-based attacks. Check them out at versec.com. This is the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 187. You know, if, uh, you know, if I do get breached, uh, you know, I can't turn around and say, you know, hey, my AI engine uh, told me that this was the best way to go. You know, it's too late. Information security has a -a whack-a-mole problem. For a long time now, the number of threats and attacks has outstripped the ability of security firms to identify and block them. Maybe they should stop trying. In the second segment of our show this week, we talk with Satya Gupta, the chief technology officer of the firm Versec, about his company's technology, which provides deterministic security for application runtimes. But first, when it passed in the 1990s, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was about protecting songs, video games, and movies from digital piracy. 30 years later, however, the DMCA's prohibitions on tampering with digital locks have been used by manufacturers of all types of devices to create de facto digital monopolies on parts and service. The same digital rights management or DRM technology that more or less dictates what kind of replacement ink cartridge you can put in your printer may soon compel you to use only your automaker's preferred tire when you get a flat on your car or manufacturer-approved bread for your smart toaster. It sounds dystopian, but it's a scenario that our guest this week thinks is very possible. Cory Doctorow is a journalist, the editor of this website, boingboing.net, and an author of books like Homeland, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, and Little Brother. In this conversation, Cory and I talk about the insidious spread of digital rights management and digital monopolies. We discuss one recent example of this, the so-called GE Filtergate incident. To start off, Corey and I talked about how we got to the point of DRM water and how the notion of digital rights has evolved over the past 40 years. So I think that, that to really understand what's going on here, you have to have some historic perspective. So, you know, I, I, I suppose your listenership is familiar with the argument about like open source versus free software and this idea that, you know, we can stress that having source publication makes code better, or we can talk about how having source publication gives you more freedom. But the, the context that I think we're missing is that when all this stuff started in the 80s, what free software or open source licensing got you was a slightly more convenient way of being able to make an add-on product or service, an interoperable product or service. There were no software copyrights to speak of, no software patents to speak of. Trade secrecy was pretty thin. There wasn't a rule against circumvention, none of those things. And so, you know, you could just, you could just copy stuff. You could make interoperable products. You know, AT&T could make Unix and 25 companies could make Unixes, some under licenses and some not. Um, and, and it was very competitive and it was very vibrant. 
And it, was, it also meant that there was a great deal of uh, sort of technological self-determination. If a thing didn't work the way you wanted it to, you could just change it, right? Just just pull it apart and change it and put it back together again. And what software licensing was, was not like forbearance, right? It, you know, today, the thing that a free and open source software license gets you is a guarantee from the company that they will not exercise the rights that they have been given to sue people who compete with them in ways they don't like. All it used to get you back then was, you know, a, a kind of reprieve from the tedious work of reverse engineering their technology before you got on with the important work of figuring out how to how to improve it, right? And and that's a huge shift. And over the decades, what has happened is that things that have software in them have acquired a kind of thicket of exclusive rights that allow manufacturers to decide who can make interoperable products and how those interoperable products can work. So there's software patents and software copyright, there's enforceable terms of service, there's trade secrecy, and, and then there's a whole bunch of exotic forms of copyright. And the most notable of these is the anti-circumvention rule. So anti-circumvention comes in in 1998 with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It's embodied in section 1201 of that act. And what it says is, if you have to defeat a copyright lock to do something, then whatever it is you're doing, even if you never violate someone's copyright, is a crime, right? Trafficking in a tool that allows someone to bypass a copyright lock under the DMCA is a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. And so in 1998, that was mostly used to like stop people from making their own Sega Dreamcast games without paying for the duplication fees for the CDs. And it made sure that if you bought a DVD in France, you couldn't watch it in America. You had to wait for the American release window because the DVD players were all region locked. But that stuff was small potatoes. You know, today you get a system on a chip for like 26 cents that has like a full GNU Linux install and busy box, right? And like, you know, network drivers and, you know, device drivers. Like It's basically, you've got like a, a mini computer, right? You've got like a, a Silicon Graphics IREX basically on a 26 cent chip that comes with your smart light bulb. And what that means is that if you design a product so that you have to bypass a lock in order to use it in ways that maximize your value at the expense of the manufacturer's shareholders, that the manufacturer can make it a felony to use your own property in ways that benefit you instead of them, right? That they can create what amounts to felony contempt of business model. And so we've seen this massive explosion of digital rights management, of software locks in, in insulin pumps and in uh, car engine parts and in iPhone screens, and in John Deere tractors, and in all these different classes of devices. And these digital locks, they don't really do any copyright work, right? It's not like John Deere is worried about people pirating their tractor OS and running it in rival tractors. But because they protect a copyrighted work, the firmware for the tractor, and because the tractor is designed so that using it in any way that displeases John Deere requires bypassing the lock, John Deere can force you to do things like pay $170 for a technician to come and type an unlock key code into your tractor's keyboard after you swap a new part into the engine, which is a thing John Deere does. And so if the hailstorm is coming and you have to bring your crop in and your tractor is there and it has working parts, it will not drive out into your field to harvest your crop 
unless a John Deere technician makes it out in time. And if they don't make it out in time, your crop fails. So this, th this has become an invitation to mischief. And this is where we get to GE. GE looks at this commodity fridge they make. And GE Appliances, it should be said, is no longer part of GE. That's part of some private equity deal. They're now owned by another company that's trying to, you know, justify the premium price they paid to buy this division off of GE. And, and they look at this fridge and they're like, oh, the fridge has got consumables, right? It's got like, it's got a water filter. Well, you know, the water filter is just charcoal, right? It's like, it's carbon. It's the most abundant element on earth. It's like so abundant that we can't figure out how to get rid of it and it might kill us all. So it's the most commodity of any commodity. But if we put an RFID chip in there that monitors how much water has flowed through the filter and will not let you reuse that filter after the water has gone through it and will not accept any device that doesn't, uh, any filter that doesn't have our cryptographically signed RFID, then we can force you to pay $55 for an $18 cartridge. And who wouldn't do that? Which is literally, which is about yeah, the difference, That is right? the actual it's, difference. It's like 54 yeah. for the, yeah, for the GE yeah. filter and then, yeah. And so, you know, on the one hand, we can condemn, we can condemn GE for doing this and we should. I mean, it's just terrible, you know, mustache twirling movie villain crap. But at the same time, like what manager, what CEO, what product designer, if presented with the opportunity to force your customer to behave as a kind of meek ambulatory wallet would not seize that opportunity, right? Like how much forbearance would you have to have to not take advantage of this? Look, you know, like I am not, I'm, I'm by no means a true believer in, in markets as the one true solution to all problems. But there is actually a thing that markets are pretty good at, which is that if you figure out a thing that commands, say, a 5,000% margin, that someone might come along and say, you know what, I'd settle for a 3,000% mar margin and they will enter the market. And what this rules, what these rules do, and, and you know, DRM and the DMCA is one of them, but, but really we should be thinking about the whole suite of rules that allow firms to decide who can compete with them and how. What they do is they eliminate that corrective measure and when you combine that with another trend that has taken place over the same period, which is lax enforcement of antitrust law, and it's a long story, but, but you know, the short version is Ronald Reagan had a darling, a guy named Robert Bork, who he had this bizarre idea about, about monopoly enforcement, where he said the only thing that, that antitrust and pro-competition regulators should worry about is whether a merger will result in immediately raised prices for consumers. And so long as that doesn't happen immediately, then there's no reason to block a merger. And of course, what that gets you is a web that is like five giant websites filled with screenshots of the other four, right? Where, where every, every, every eyewear brand you've ever heard of is owned by one company, a PE-back company in Luxottica that also owns LensCrafters and Sunglass Hut and every other eyewear retailer you've ever heard of and the largest lab in the world, Essilor, and the largest insurer in the world, IMED. And there used to be 30 pro wrestling leagues, and now there's one. And, you know, the same is true in every industry. So when you have this massive market concentration, you have these two things that happen. So one is that firms are able to abuse these rules to decide who may compete with them and how, who can enter the market with a competitive offering. And there are so few firms that it's possible for them to arrive at a collusive consensus 
that they will all partake in the bad, same bad conduct so that you can't just say, oh, I'll just find a better fridge. And that's kind of the trajectory, right? That's the thing that we should be worried about. That's why we should be really up in arms about GE and surrounding the factory with pitchforks and torches is because if it works for GE, then KitchenAid is next, right? And if it works for, if it works for filters, then the next thing that goes is your butter dish. Or ice. And it'll be like, I'm sorry. Yeah, did you, did you buy authorized butter, right? Because this butter dish is designed to optimally soften manufacturer-approved butters. And, you know, we want to make sure that you have the optimal user experience right. of butter. Oh, yeah, you can't, so, right, you can't just put any butter. I mean, you know, no. you, there could be rat poison in that butter. <laughs> right, and, you know, like, I, I mean, I wrote a novella about this, Unauthorized Bread, that y you can read on Ars Technica. It's being turned into a TV show by the people who own The Intercept uh, topic. Uh, but, but, you know... Really, why if if we're willing to say, I'm sorry, you can't install an app of your choosing on your phone because it might be bad for you and it might endanger you, then why wouldn't we say, I'm sorry, you can't put bread of your choosing in your toaster? I mean, kitchen fires have killed a lot more people than bad apps, right? Uh, you you stick you stick a bagel in your toaster. The next thing you know, you're sticking a knife in there to get it out. The next thing you know, you know you're dead on the floor. Right. So why should we let you put any old bread in there? And besides that, think of the user experience we could guarantee if we if we could tell you which bread went in the toaster. Right. Well, and we <laughs> can know? monitor when the when your bread is getting low and we could order you new bread. So you don't that, have to do that. All of the above. We can certify that it's fair trade. Yeah. We right. can, you know, like right. we can do all kinds of really beneficial things if only you allow us to make it a felony surrender agency for you to use right. your property right. this way. Right. Yeah. Right. So and one thing that confuses me, and I know you're not a lawyer and I'm not a lawyer, so it's going to be one of those conversations where two people who aren't lawyers talk about the law. But it would it would seem to me that mandating that you have to buy a GE OEM approved filter is illegal under antitrust law under, I, I don't know if it's a Clayton Act or the Sherman Antitrust Act, but it's it's a tying arrangement where in order to if you buy this fridge, you have to buy a certain filter. And that would seem to be pretty clearly illegal. But yet it is being done right now as we speak. I think that ship, I don't know if that ship has sailed, but that ship has sailed for now. Remember that, you know, there really isn't a private right of action here, right? Like you don't get to decide which rules the FTC or the DOJ is going to enforce. They decide and their institutional priorities do not at present time reach to that kind of activity, nor have they for a very long time, primarily because of this Borkian theory of antitrust. And, you know, I said Ronald Reagan was had this darling Robert Bork, but it wasn't just Reagan who, who adopted Borkian ideas of monopoly enforcement. In fact, Reagan got very little of Bork's agenda through. It was every president afterwards, Democrat and Republican, who expanded the kind of uh, laissez-faire approach to anti-monopoly and antitrust enforcement in the years since. And, you know, I do think the winds are changing. And when you look back to the Gilded Age and the trust busting, you know, the Sherman Act was passed decades before trust busting started. The Sherman Act was a toothless tiger for decades. And what, what change was the political climate? Here's my, my message of hope to you, right? Which is that before the term ecology was was coined in the 1970s, there were people who were really upset about the plight of owls and other people who really cared about the ozone layer and still more people who cared about acid rain. But they did not see themselves as working in the same movement. 
they saw themselves as working on different issues, maybe issues, you know, that they could all get behind, but it wasn't part of the same cause. The term ecology took every one of those causes and welded them together into a movement. There are people today who are sad because their favorite wrestlers are begging for medical money on GoFundMe because after Vince McMahon bought all the leagues, he took away their health insurance and now they're all dying in their 50s with no medical insurance. And there are people who are angry because all the eyewear brands are owned by one company. And there's people who are angry because all the oil companies are down to like three or four. And there are people who are angry about shipping. And there's people who are angry about every other industry, including tech, including appliances, including automotive. Right? And all of those people right now think that what they're angry about is cars or computers or the web or eyeglasses or wrestling. But they're really angry about monopolies. Well, I mean, it's... A here in Massachusetts, in fact, there's a, there's a ballot initiative sponsored by you know AAA and and uh, independent auto uh, repair companies to basically expand the state's uh, auto right to repair bill to include um, wireless telematics, which kind of got carved out of the original yep. bill. I did some work on that. I did some work on that ballot initiative. You did? Oh, good. But if yeah. you try and talk to the people organizing that campaign about digital right to repair, they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't want to talk about that. Like, that's not our, you know, that's not our issue. We don't want to talk about phones. And, and it's like, but it's the same here's issue. What I think, <laughs> here's what I think about those people, because I do know them reasonably well. I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school here. It's that they are leery of being accused of being the camel's nose under the tent or the thin edge of the wedge, Right. First cars, next iPhones. And fucking Apple, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, sure, right? <laughs> but Apple killed 20 right-to-repair bills in 20 states in one year. Yeah, yeah. Right? So what they want to do, maybe they will be the camel's nose and maybe they won't. I don't want to, you know, like I'm, I don't think that history runs on these kind of rails of inevitability. But if like they want very much not to say, hey, Apple, there's an initiative here that might gore your ox. And by the way, you've got however many hundreds of billions of dollars stashed overseas that you can use to destroy it. Right. That's what they're leery of. And that's why they're if you ask them about phones, they'll say it's not phones, it's cars. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. All a car is is a computer in a fancy case. Right. Of course. Right. Right. A plane is a flying Unix box. Of course. Right. I get it. But a, a nuclear power plant. Is, is a computer in a very fancy, very volatile case, right? It's the world's greatest case mod. All of that said, you know, like I understand where they're, like tactically, I understand why they don't want to. Well, they don't right, because the, the, the huge amount of money on the other side kind of forces you yeah. to be atomized. Nobody wants to get beat with that cudgel. And they don't want Apple coming into their into their fight. They'd rather just take on the, the auto manufacturers who, who don't have Apple's money or savvy. I get it. But the fact that we're atomized is, is you know, that's by design. Anyway, uh, so so along comes the GE Filtergate, and, and there have been other people who have done the same exact hack and, and didn't set up a website about it. But um, so it's not exactly new. I kind of love this, and it reminds me of the of the Terry Gilliam film, uh, Brazil, um, which mm-hmm. which centered on a on a um, rogue kind of uh, uh, air conditioning repairman, yep. Archibald Tuttle. Archibald Tuttle. That's right. Um, and so I, you kind of thrill at these, you know, pretty ingenious, um, workarounds and hacks to defeat this DRM. There's part of me also that thinks that, that I shouldn't be so excited about them, that it's kind of a maladaptation. Um, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. Okay. Well, look, you're right that the fact that companies invest in anti-features, right, that, you know, things that nobody wants, right? Like nobody ever went to the store and said, 
do you have a fridge that makes it really hard for me to use independently produced filters? Because right. that's what I'm here for, right? There's no salesman who who extols the virtue of the proprietary filter when you're when you're thinking about buying a fridge, right? So so it is perverse that firms are investing in garbage anti features, but the equilibrium that produces that investment is that there is no opportunity for counter investment from a third party that would undermine the excess margins that you're collecting, the excess rents that you're collecting. So let me give you an example of how this can go wrong for a firm. In the early 2000s, Lexmark was a division of IBM, and they too had invented a form of proprietary carbon. It was the carbon powder in their, la in their laser printer cartridges, in their toner cartridges. And they, it was the very early days of, of embedded computing. And they had an embedded system chip. And because computers were uh, expensive back then, it had 12 bytes of main memory and they had a 12 byte program in it. And what it did is when all the toner was empty, it flipped a bit that went for, that told the printer, I am a full cartridge to I am an empty cartridge. And if you put more carbon powder in the cartridge, the chip would still say, I am empty, right? So along comes a company called Static Controls and Static I believe they were Taiwanese. They cloned the chip, which is not hard. It was a 12-byte uh, operating environment, right? Yeah. They cloned the chip, and they 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 made a chip that would just say, I'm always full, right? I'm, I'm here and ready to print. And Lexmark sued them, and they said, you violated the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And the court said, so the Digital Millennium Copyright Act protects copyrighted works. Are you saying your carbon powder is a copyrighted work? They were like, no. He said, well, where's the copyrighted work here? And they said, oh, it's the 12 byte program on our chip. And the court said, like, look, software can be copyrightable, but this software, 12 bytes of it, it's not even a haiku. Right. Right. This is not copyrightable code. It doesn't rise to the standard copyrightability. So here's the kicker. Static used the revenues that it generated from rating the margins that Lexmark was charging on carbon to build up such a war chest that Lexmark is currently a division of static control. <laughs> right? Right. So th that's, that's what shifts when you take away a firm's right to decide who can compete with them because competitors will come in and they can outrun you, right? They can just do a complete lap around you while you are trying to convince customers to buy anti-feature products. Right. Right. So there is mortal risk for these companies, even if they don't, if their eyes are kind of glazed over with the dollar signs that they're, that they're going to be able to basically extort from their customers in the short term. Back to, you know, how markets are supposed to work, right? Y your margin is my opportunity. If, if you've got a 5,000% margin on carbon, I know where I can get some carbon and I'll take, I'll happily take 2,000%. Yeah. Right. It's, it's only the presence of the law that shifts the equilibrium. Yeah. You're listening to the Security Ledger Podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Versex Systems. How common are these um, these types of um, features? My sense is they're becoming more and more common. I mean, we've seen, obviously, Apple get more and more aggressive with its anti-repair features. They'd say anti-tampering, but they're basically anti-repair features. Mm -hmm. are, other, are other device makers uh, following suit? Is, is GE the, um, the exception or the rule? 
Oh no, there's tons. I mean, you know, we talked about inkjet printers, also also embedded systems in car engines, also medical devices for sure. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. insulin pumps. You know, there, there's just so much proprietary consumable stuff out there. Proprietary uh, spares as well. You know, firms have always thought of the service market as as a really important market to corner. And and you know, we tend to think of the major effect of cornering the market as being able to gouge on service and parts. And but I think that that's actually just the icing on the cake. The real cake is being able to decide when no repair is possible. So you right. mentioned I fix it. I fix it routinely, its customers, the people who buy its repair manuals and its tools, routinely fix iPhones that Apple says cannot be repaired. Now it's not a coincidence that in the first uh, shareholder meeting of 2019, Tim Cook told his shareholders that the biggest threat to the company's profitability is that people were holding onto their devices for longer rather than replacing them every couple of years. And so if a manufacturer gets to decide when your device is e-waste, they get to decide when you buy a new device. And if they have an ecosystem that locks you in, like for example, if all your apps are tethered to your platform, then they can be pretty sure that you'll buy the, a device from them. And so, yeah, there's there's tons of manufacturers who who see this as a as a beneficial way to go. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, I guess one one question is, what's the fix here? I mean, there's part of me that thinks, well, the laws are already on the books to 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 um, prevent a lot of this egregious behavior. The you know anti tying laws and and other things and the Clayton Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act, those are already on the books. They're just not being enforced. At the same time, it's very, very difficult to get consumers to kind of have situational awareness about this. It's kind of like we're all, you know, frogs in the in the pot of boiling water. So, so what is to be done? Well, you know, Larry Lessig talks about there being these four forces that regulate our 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 world. Right? There's um, code, what's technologically possible, law, what's what's lawfully permissible, norms, what's socially acceptable, and markets, what's profitable. And they all work in, in harmony. And sometimes when you run out of headroom, say, with the law because no one wants to enforce the laws, then you have to go for norms, right? You have to, you have to start telling people that it wasn't a vast impersonal force that decided that you should buy $55 carbon for your fridge. It was like a named individual, and here's, what they, here's where they live, right? M maybe we have to have a normative shift that makes those companies beyond the pale, makes them pariahs. And maybe that will spur either or a competitor that decides to enter the market and dare them to sue or action from Congress where to, to, to strengthen yeah. the law or possibly action from an attorney general. You know, attorney generals are, are kind of a, a secret engine of, of uh, progress here. You know, they say AG stands for aspiring governor. And, you yeah. know, these these pocketbook issues you know, like I want to I want to make it so that you have permission to decide which carbon goes in your fridge because you're getting ripped off by this big impersonal PE backed appliance company. Uh, yeah. You know, that's a that's the kind of thing that everybody loves. And so, you know, went back. I don't know if you remember the Sony root kit when they when Sony poisoned millions <laughs> of, of computers yeah. with audio CDs. You know, yeah. the FTC, we got almost nothing out of them. But the AGs just tore Sony a new a-hole. Uh, yeah, because that because, you know, why wouldn't they? Right. It's within their power. Sony was absolutely egregious to do what they did. And it affected the people that they have jurisdiction over. And everyone can understand that Sony giving your computer a virus on the off chance that you're a music pirate is not cool. 
So, you know, not to mention that Sony infected two to 300,000 U.S. military and government networks with malware with that stunt. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So we, we have seen we have seen scores, literally, of state-level right-to-repair laws. Um, I've lobbied on behalf of a couple of them, and uh, they, they've they all been shot down. Um, I mean, this year, kind of COVID took them all out, um, so we can't really say it was lobbying by Apple. But in past years, it's been lobbying by, you know, um, CTIA and, and, and mm-hmm. Apple and others. Should we be encouraged by this that that eventually one of these things is gonna is gonna make it through? So many states um, bringing this up year after year. It, it, eventually, uh, are we are we gonna is is it gonna slip through? And and is there is obviously that's evidence of a of a grassroots support for this. But what what do you think is gonna happen? Well, you know, in some states, you're seeing ballot initiatives to circumvent the uh, the fallibility or the corruptibility of their state legislatures. So that yeah. might be the the next phase. Um, the other thing that I think is that you will see people become increasingly radicalized, right? That the the failure of the procedural, you know, escape valve here that's supposed to that's supposed to stop us from boiling over by allowing people to petition for redress for bad laws that's just being trumped and trumped again by big money. You know, it's just people's view from the problem being a legislative oversight to the problem being legislative corruption. Yeah. And once that happens, then you start to see people like losing elections. You see people being made vulnerable on those issues. You see donations. You see people who take it up as a matter of principle. And as I was saying before, I think that we are ripe for a moment in which people start to recognize that a bunch of seemingly disparate issues actually have a common root cause, which is yes. monopolism. And that monopolism in all its guises and expressions will be in bad odor, especially after COVID, right? Because after COVID, you're going to see everyone with yeah. dry powder, everyone with a lot of money is going to be buying up distressed firms like crazy, right? And so we're going to see even more market concentration and more dysfunction as a consequence. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Is there a better word than monopolism, though? <laughs> I, I you're like, super cre- you're creative, and I, I, ecology is great, but but I don't know. Monopolism I mean, I, doesn't, I mean, I like roll off so the tongue, monopolism. Right? The thing about monopolism <laughs> is it's what we don't want, so it's actually right. anti-monopolism, which sucks. Anti-monopolism. I yeah. like pluralism. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Lots, my, yeah. Of course. Right. And yeah, I like it's a good way. It's all encompassing. Yeah, and and I think it's like it's corollary or corollary for Americans is uh, self-determination. Right. Mm, even better. Lots of firms out there, lots of centers of power, lots of places you can get stuff, lots of places you can use stuff. And why do you want lots of places? So you can decide how the stuff that you rely on works. Corey, Dr. O, that is a great um, note to end it on. I totally agree. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us again on the Security Ledger podcast. All right. Well, I'll talk to you later. Corey Doctorow is the editor of boingboing.net and the author of a number of books, including Little Brother, Down and Out, and The Magic Kingdom, and Homeland. Up next, information security has a scale problem. Simply put, there are too many threats and too many threat actors for cyber defenders to keep up. Despite vast improvements in defensive technologies and and so-called incident response, the bad guys are adapting their methods as well and staying one step ahead. Many think the solution to this is more automation. Use computers guided by machine learning and artificial intelligence to do the work of of scarce human operators. But such approaches carry real risk. Among them, false positives and false negatives, as well as the unplanned downtime that each creates. 
Our next guest says a better approach might be to stop playing whack-a-mole with attackers and threats and focus on what matters, ensuring that developed code behaves as it was intended to. Satya Gupta is the chief technology officer at the firm Versec. In this conversation, he and I talk about how the firm started in the wake of the SQL Slammer outbreak in the early 2000s, and how technologies like application runtime mapping are taking on new relevance in the age of DevSecOps and ShiftLeft. Yes, my name is Satya Gupta, and I'm the CTO at Versec. Satya, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you. Very nice talking to you. It's nice talking to you as well. Satya, for the listeners, Security Ledger podcast listeners we have who aren't familiar with uh, Versec as a company, could you tell us a little bit about Versec and also you know, in the CTO role, what, what you do there? So, yeah. So, uh, as uh, I mentioned earlier, I'm the CTO. I am also the founder of this company and this technology. A very close friend of mine who's a professor at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, um, we were having uh, coffee at a Starbucks and uh, we were kind of watching with, um, you know, with a little bit of anxiety about, you know, the slammer worm, this MS SQL slammer worm that was taking down uh, hundreds of thousands of machines on an hourly basis. And we were very dismayed to see that Symantec, McAfee, a whole bunch of other security control uh, providers were sending out signature after signature because the slammer worm was a polymorphic worm. It kept changing its signature essentially on the uh, on the network. And so it became really like a, uh, you know, a game of arcade, you know, where you kind of, you know, one of those... Um, uh, where you kind of uh, lean on one frog and it shows up, another one pops up somewhere else and all. That game would be whack-a-mole. Yes, exactly right. So I was, uh, you know, we were kind of sitting there and we kind of, uh, we were trying to figure out, you know, what would be a good way uh, and sort of everybody has been, uh, you know, all the security controls that we see so far have been chasing data uh, that's coming in and they're looking for, uh, you know, bad stuff inside that data. The reality is that, you know, it's really the code, you know, the developer uh, is trying to run a piece of code and the attacker is trying to run a piece of code. And if it uh, turns out that the uh, developer's code has a uh, has a vulnerability in it, then the attacker's code will start running. Um, and that's what uh, is the very first thing that the, uh, the, the attacker is looking to do is to be able to run their own code or something that they can influence. So what we decided to do is we have this concept that we call app map. Uh, what it does is basically kind of projects, you know, how an application is likely to execute. So if I had source code available to me, I would be able to see all of this very easily. Right? Yeah. So that this particular function will call this other function. I can see that. But, you know, when it turns into machine code, it turns out that, you know, uh, if you know what you're doing, then, you know, you can follow the same logic to be able to predict where, uh, how the CPU will be executing. So if you think of if a, a journey that you might be taking in your car, follow, let's say there are 10 instructions or 10 turns that you have to make from your starting point from your source uh, to the destination. Um, then what we do is we make sure that at the time that you are about to make that uh, turn, we kind of make sure that, you know, the application is performing, doing the right thing. So we have almost like the GPS that makes sure that the application is uh, proceeding along the line that you thought you would be doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, by just following these addresses in memory and by extracting those linkages ahead of time that we call app maps, we are able to make sure that the application stays on its guardrails. You know, you mentioned Schneider Electric and your work with industrial control uh, system vendors, OEMs. That That's a really interesting space, first of all, because we know from just the headlines and what's been reported and, and so on that 
you know, critical infrastructure, ICS and SCADA systems are absolutely a target of sophisticated cyber adversaries, actors, nation state and otherwise. And also because, you know, the rap that the SCADA industry has is, you know, there's a lot of legacy equipment, um, maybe not a great track record of secure coding and secure application development, a lot of kind of set it and forget it uh, deployments where, you know, you've got infrastructure owners who really um, have very uh, geographically, physically distributed networks and and just are, are very reluctant to be aggressively updating and patching and and um, managing, you know, assets that are working, you know. <laughs> um, how, um, what, what's been Versex experience working within that vertical? And um, are those things changing? Is that industry getting kind of more um, savvy about both on the application security side and also about sort of the active management piece that, you know, you, you, you can't, we no longer can kind of set it and forget it and leave something configured the same way for, you know, a year or five years or 10 years. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, I have to say that, you know, the industry itself, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, Schneider, Aviva and all are really uh, very uh, savvy companies and they produce really high quality code. Uh, but really the trouble comes on, uh, you know, from the operation side, you know, the folks who kind of uh, use the products and all are um, kind of reluctant to sort of cause business disruption. So they really have no ability or very poor ability to upgrade, even though some really good code is available from, uh, you know, the vendors, you know, it's, it's all about the business disruption. And so we kind of, what we notice is that, you know, the, the reason why, you know, a lot of those uh, operators like us a lot is because, uh, you know, even if your code is vulnerable, when you run Versec with it, it cannot be exploited. So, so that's good news. You know, you get uh, almost like this concept of virtual patching. Uh, you know, it, it is uh, uh, the code is really uh, resilient in many ways. It uh, doesn't need to be patched on an emergency basis. And, uh, you know, you can plan your, uh, you know, upgrades and all essentially. So that's uh, one good uh, thing that we notice out there. And the, the way we kind of protect it is that uh, protect the ICS infrastructure is that, you know, a lot of these uh, attacks that you might see, you know, WannaCry is a very good example, but now there's been other famous ones like uh, Stuxnet, uh, Industroyer, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, such like uh, NotPetya and stuff like that. Blackout, yep. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So so they they all start uh, either from the IT uh, side of the fence or uh, mm -hmm. if they do start from the OT, uh, uh, you know, in the industrial control system, they follow a model called the uh, Purdue Enterprise Representative Architecture PERA model for short. And so they have these divided these, um, you know, these tiers of uh, applications uh, that they have in that uh, pair model uh, into levels. So the OT uh, starts off with level three, which is where all the uh, historians that are going to get exposed uh, to the Internet are located. And they're like HMIs, human machine interfaces and things like those. But then there are these app servers, database servers and all that are in level two. And it's weaknesses in these servers or library injection capability in these servers that um, sort of uh, allow uh, bad things to get downloaded onto level one, which is where all the PLCs and all are uh, running. And so the goal of the attacker is somehow to be able to reach the PLCs. But, you know, with Versec sitting in the middle to protect, uh, you know, PLCs uh, from being uh, accessed directly, um, you know, we are able to uh, keep lock them out you know, with the uh, tier three and tier, I'm sorry, level three and level two uh, servers being very well protected. It's just uh, very, very, very difficult to get to the PLCs, uh, you know, directly. 
you know, these days you, you can't have a conversation and not talk about the COVID pandemic and, and all the changes that, that have gone along with that. I'd be interested in your thoughts on um, how you've seen COVID have an impact just uh, maybe within Versec, but also within your customer base. And if we're to look in the crystal ball, you know, out two or three years, what you think the long term changes that will result uh, from COVID are what types of practices and you know new normal are we likely to see once we've we've got the virus under control? That's absolutely a great question. And what we are seeing here is that you know uh, there's this whole notion of uh, digital transformation that everybody's been talking about. What does it mean? Uh, it means you know even those people who are very reluctant to put up uh, you know digital or software application that can help with productivity or let people work from home and are, are now making a beeline to deploying those kind of applications um, you know helter skelter. And so what we are seeing here is that you know there's a whole bunch of uh, you know companies who are rushing out to uh, deploy software. So we f- we feel that you know. Know, there'll be a great rush uh, to uh, deploy applications that were people were uh, sort of semi-reluctant to deploy previously. But now, you know, there is no choice out here because, um, you know, this is our new normal here. You know, more and more people will uh, uh, like to work from home and, uh, you know, would like to uh, make sure that they don't get impacted by it. This is a nasty disease, as we all know, you know, if, um, it doesn't show any sign of abating and all. And you know, I have family members who's um, who work with other companies uh, who have been told to work from home from uh, until the end of this year. So, you know, that leads me to think that, you know, it's the this age old notion that software eats the world is going to actually come true here. You know, that, um, you know, we'll see more and more software and more and more hardware being deployed. And, you know, the need to keep yourself safe, um, you know, as you be- as software becomes mainstream in everybody's life. You know, if let's say it was touching 60% people before, now it's got to be close to 90%. And, you know, there's got to be subtle uh, changes in, uh, you know, how we all think of digital transformation and all happening in different parts of our lives and on. Maybe we should change that to so- software and viruses eat the world. <laughs> absolutely. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Silicon and, and biology. Yeah. Final question from your Perch as the chief technology officer at Versec, you know, what what has caught your interest both in terms of threats and threat trends out there within the, you know, Versec customer base and also what is coming down the road in terms of new defenses or protections from from Versec? Absolutely. We see that, um, you know, typically, you know, the if I were a burglar and if I had a choice, I could uh, uh, go to my next door neighbor or go to the ATM. I would actually focus on the ATM, right? There's more money to be had out there, essentially. Not that I would do it, but, you know, I'd, uh, that'd be a juicier target. So we, what we see is, uh, you know, um, there's a whole sector in the business security control that are in, that trying to protect the endpoints. And that's a good thing, you know, because, you know, that's where credentials are stolen and all. But the real target is these servers, essentially, where there's, um, you know, IP and, um, you know, high, you know, high value assets that are, uh, you know, your information assets that are um, uh, stored on the servers. Those are the big juicy targets and all. So what we do see is that, you know, uh, there's more and more focus, uh, you know, on having mechanisms that are very precise. So the existing security control, one of the biggest, uh, you know, downsides of many of these security controls is because they uh, sort of resort to projections, uh, they end up with false positives. 
and people are now moving the boardroom is uh, now thinking about uh, zero tolerance you know kind of thing zero yeah. risk people are looking for how to reduce that risk and so we see exact technologies like uh, versec uh, which are very deterministic which are not uh, driven by ai and ml and all you know if uh, you know if i do get breached uh, you know i can't turn around and say you know hey my ai engine uh, uh, told me that this was the best way to go you know it's um, it's too late so there's more and more room for exact and um, deterministic technologies that i see out here applications have to become self resilient you know they should be able to defend themselves and um, you know we see that uh, the uh, technologies like versec which are kind of running in in line inside the application are going to displace you know technology that are running outside and because of the lack of precision and the lack of visibility that those kind of technologies do not have inside the application so more and more you know the big trend uh, you know it will become harder and harder for the attackers i would think uh, because uh, now you know they kind of uh, relying today on um, uh, vulnerabilities that are um, present in the application but if the application were not being able to uh, get exploited then uh, you know it just makes uh, life easier and uh, you know we'll see as you rightly mentioned before the software and the, uh, viruses or malware is eating the world it will turn towards more towards uh, you know um, software being able to keep you safe essentially okay so if somebody's listening and they're an application developer maybe they're working on some legacy code base might be years old uh, or longer <laughs> Uh, or they're in some greenfield startup. Can can they equally approach Versec? Is is it better for one or the other? And and uh, how do they contact you if they are intrigued by what you have been talking about? Absolutely. You know, we uh, because we don't require source code and we kind of um, do things at a much uh, granular level. We are basically keeping the application safe. Um, you know, there's there's always been this uh, whole thought process that somehow you could pr- write better code and all. And we've we've been talking about this for the last 50 years now. I I would say, uh, you know, <laughs> since the Morris Worm came up, but it's not really a practical approach, right? The developer will do what the developer does. And having been one, I can tell you, you know, if you came up to me and said, you know, hey, better write some uh, more uh, secure code. I'd look at right. what does this mean? And so with the WordSec, you know, you have to quit. That's, you know, it's how the GPS changed everybody's world, right? So in the past, you know, I'd, uh, I've been driving with, the, you know, in, before the GPSs were around, you know, you'd actually have a map in your hand and, you know, um, your um, colleague who's sitting next to you might be telling you or, you know, your uh, partner might be telling you, you know, go left and you say, no, no, I think I have to go right kind of thing, right? So none of that matters anymore at that point with the tool like Versec in the working to help the developer. And, uh, you know, it uh, it is also possible that, uh, you know, uh, there are all these tools that work, uh, that kind of embed themselves in the source code directly. But, um, you know, in my mind, you know, there'll always be a case where, you um, yeah, you'll be using third-party code. So it's not just necessary to embed uh, security into your own code, but you're so dependent on third-party code that you have to somehow be able to secure that. You know, you can't really, really if you have five doors in your home and uh, you can't put like a guard at uh, two doors and leave the other three open, um, you know. So technologies that kind of work, uh, uh, you know, agnostic uh, to the code are uh, inherently going to be more use- useful than uh, technology controls that work uh, in your first party code and um, you know they have a bit uh, bigger uh, canvas they are able to uh, protect the application uh, a larger part of the application's attackable surface so i feel uh, you know uh, this would be a good uh, thing for developers where uh, you know you can just focus on writing good uh, you know your functionality and making sure 
you know, have uh, a control like Versec with you that uh, will keep you safe no matter what happens. Satya Gupta, co-founder and CTO at Versec, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Satya Gupta is the Chief Technology Officer at Versec Systems. You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This episode of the podcast was sponsored by Versec Systems. Versec was founded on the belief that a new model is needed to counter today's advanced cyber threats. Versec's technology pinpoints threats at the source within business-critical applications. The Versec platform maps correct application behavior and instantly detects and blocks deviations caused by attacks. This deterministic approach stops threats in real time, delivering unprecedented accuracy without false positives. Versec protects any application, patched or unpatched, across the full application stack from web threats to binary memory-based attacks. Check them out at versec.com.